Welcome to the second episode of the Rob is Right podcast. Uh, we are here with the one, the only, the bona fide legend himself, Rob Smith. How are you doing today? I am well, Stu. How are you? Just hanging out. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, Before we get started, Stu, I would like to um, tell you that I had a number of comments from women in multiple states, much older than you, who said to me, that Stu is just adorable. Well, that is very nice of them. Uh, I was just looking at the YouTube, and uh, you have a fan as well who left a very nice comment. I noticed you said a fan. <laughs> uh, uh, he seems to be a, a gentleman from uh, the Middle East who thinks that you, I imagine, are very handsome because he said that you look like uh, Julio Iglesias, the uh, the singer, the footballer, and the father of Enrique Iglesias. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know I had such Latin qualities. But apparently you do. And yeah. he left uh, a smiley face and a heart after okay. saying that. So. Well, Stu, I think you have an opportunity for some cougarisms here, buddy, from, I'm just saying. Okay, thank you. Okay. I just want to get it out of the way. No, thank you, thank you. Um, so, we have some articles to look at today, and the first one is pretty interesting. And so, it is about what they're calling the virtual idol industry. Uh, which is attracting hundreds of millions of fans in China. So instead of having a um, spokesperson for a company, uh, you know, OJ was a spokesperson uh, for, uh, yeah. And, you know, run through the airports. Ex exactly. And so, uh, you know, great spokesman too. Cause you know, if you want to sell your product, you know, the best thing to do is go ahead and kill your wife and her boyfriend. I mean, you know, <laughs> sales just go off the shelf. Well, and, and that's the issue that these companies are having is that their spokespersons get into trouble. And so instead of having that risk of your spokesperson having legal trouble or personal life trouble, they say, why don't we just make fake, um, essentially computer icons people and they will represent our company instead so that way there's no risk for any sort of scandal with any kind of spokesperson well Stu, i don't know about that because you know foghorn leghorn was a totally fabricated creature and um he had a scandal with the widow hen <laughs> okay. oh yeah you probably don't remember that well uh, Everybody in Looney Tunes was talking about it. I remember the chick, little chicken hawk that used to follow him around, but outside of that. <laughs> but uh, I think that I think the issue for me that I think this is a step towards totalitarianism, where you know we're not even we're we're getting rid of any kind of human element. You know, it's not like it's being cutesy and Bugs Bunny is coming out to sponsor Goodyear or something like that. Uh, you know, one of the people who was interviewed for this article said that, um, you know, their virtual nature creates a fantasy, a beautiful and pure world for fans. The deep love these fans have for virtual idols can be then shown by consuming products in real life. Um, I can uh, imagine that in 1984, in Oceana, Winston Smith made, if they had commercials in Oceana, since this was a, a communist state, I don't know whether he actually sold anything, but any kind of informational um, format might very well have deployed this, uh, kind of the perfect um, Marxist. Yeah, there's kind of like the Russian athletes were perfect yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, when they go into, you know, how that um, the person interviewed said, you know, the beautiful and pure world, 
where, you know, you're so in the ideal of things in an unrealistic way that I think you're just losing touch with reality. And, you know, reality is, is human and messy and can just be prone to mistakes. And so it just is very troubling to me that, you know, hundreds of millions of people in China like this and they think it's a good system. Well, I think that might be a little bit of the difference between the East and the West. I'm not exactly sure, but did you ever see the uh, silent movie Potemkin? I have not seen that. It was a Soviet um, propaganda film, and um, it was like springtime in this Potemkin village, and everything's perfect. Uh, much the same. Um, uh, format and silhouette that I think you're talking about with these creatures, these totally fabricated creatures. Uh, yeah, I think it's weird too. Uh, but then again, it also might be weird to have um, Jennifer Aniston or um, Brad Pitt or something market something to you just because they're a movie star. Uh, yeah, and, and it doesn't mean anything to me, but. I mean, I like looking at Jennifer Aniston. I mean, it grabs my attention, but um, it reminds me of when Sissy Spacebeck, Spacek, and Glenn Close, they made a movie about farming, um, and th this is in the 1980s, and then they appeared before Congress to be specialists on, to be experts on farming and the farm prices in the United States, you know, but, um, but, you know, a lot of people do pay attention to these um, celebrities. I've never been celebrity odd, uh, Stu. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there's just an element to all of this where, you know, maybe, you know, we just, from the get-go, don't want to buy into it. But to me, you know, I see, I see this. And, you know, my head goes down the road to what does this look like in 30 years? And well, yeah, it can definitely be a control mechanism for the masses. But, you know, the Geico lizard, is he a lizard? Yes, he's a gecko. Yeah. Oh, gecko is a lizard. Yes. Yeah. By the way, everybody, Stu knows his science. Okay. You do. You're, you're a scientist, right? I mean, you oh, and, and, demonstrations to people about science. It's a lot you don't know about Stu, but he's very complicated. Um, but, the, you know, the Geico sp sp spokesman, I mean, he's a, f a fabricated person. But I think the difference here is that everybody knows he's a fabricated person, where these idolized people in China, Japan too, right? These yeah, they, they have are, an idol culture as well. Right, but they are not animated creatures. They're humans that have been fabricated into some level of perfection. And they have their own story behind them as though they're real, but obviously they're not. Yeah, the whole thing is very weird. And I guess as outsiders, there might be a cultural aspect that, you know, is just over our heads on this, but it is just the... And, you know, you could maybe say that we had something similar with this with Marilyn Monroe, where she was a manufactured celebrity in a way. You don't think you think her boobs were fake? Well, Norma Jean. You know what you're talking about? Well, it, it was going from Norma Jean to Marilyn Monroe, going blonde, you know. Well, they all are that way. Everybody in Hollywood is a fake. I mean, yeah, the persona they put on, except for my man, Jimmy Stewart, of course, and Clint, they're real. But um, most of these people, it's just a persona of somebody they're not. Um, true, true. I just, uh, you know, and what the article kind of discussed was that this was largely in response to, you know, this previous spokesperson getting into some legal troubles and how, you know, why even risk that? And so I just think the aspect of, you know, not wanting to have any risk and just wanting to create the fabricated reality is just the start of something just very weird when we go to, you know, marketing and especially how the marketing is done 
in China with the government and all of that, where, you know, is this 30 years down the line? Am I going to have VR goggles and my ad is going to be this perfect person who shows up and tries to sell me something? And it just kind of goes into just, it's just what I imagine is the dystopian nightmare sci-fi in the future. So. Well, I admit it could be very Orwell Orwellian and could be used as a tool of the state to control the masses. Um, I'd like to kind of have an idea of the psyche of the Chinaman or the Japanese fellow who identifies with the figure, whether, what, you know, what do they feel about the figure? I mean, are they enwrapped in the personality uh, in the background of the figure, kind of like somebody might be that way to Kim Kardashian? Or do they see it as just something fun and, and fabricated? There I sense def- the former. It's kind of yeah. There, there are definitely both. I mean, uh, there are real people who are do the idol culture as well. You know, that would fit more of a Kim K kind of vibe. But uh, the whole thing is just weird. Uh, there's a TV show on Netflix. It was in Britain back in the early 2000 teens. Uh, called Black Mirror. And one of the episodes actually kind of ties into this where there's like a social media startup that has this logo. And as time goes on, this logo eventually gets elected president. And, you know, the technocracy has kind of come into fruition. And so that is kind of my great fear is that depending on how good the technology gets, where you could essentially make a fake person you know, all the politicians could essentially just be, you know, virtual idols, whether we are acknowledging it or not or aware of it or not. Yeah. Have you ever seen seen Lindsey Graham? <laughs> how, how, would, how would you know if there's a real Lindsey Graham or if he's just fabricated? Yeah. And that, and that, that was the thing in 1984, whether or not, you know, Big Brother was a real person or not. They could have part of um, parliamentary procedures in the House and the Senate full of fake people and they give these glorious speeches and then they uh, all vote a hundred to one to to basically enslave you. Yeah or just to push certain agendas through. But yeah, so well, I think a lot of the people who do uh, the hero worshiping of me are, are kind of strange. Yeah. You know, I walk down the street and they tug on my shirt tail and they ask for a lock of my hair. I just think that's weird. You know, you're, you're just a man. You know, you put your pants on one leg at a time. And anybody else. Yeah. yeah. I don't need any special attention. So our next story concerns. Oh, whoa. we're gonna do. Aren't we gonna do? Is is Rob is right or is Rob wrong or right or? Well, it sounded like you know you thought it was wrong from the get go. So what what do you think? Are they right to do this? Well, I'm a little bit nuanced, more nuanced than you, Stu. I'm not the absolutist that you are. Okay. Um, you know, it could be fun. It could be a trend. Um, it doesn't bother me that much now, but I concur with you that it is something that is uh, that one should worry about, and I think it just needs to be monitored a little bit. Okay. Well, Stu, do you want to be an absolutist and say, we must destroy China as long as they put up these fake people? Uh, no, but I, I, just, I guess my, my gut is just. I just know it's insidious from the get-go, so. And it um, could be, yeah, it, it could be a slippery slope. Yeah. Stu, I appreciate your thinking there, buddy. We need more Americans like you who can, you. Who can look into the future and see how bad things can get if we don't take action today. So this next story concerns uh, the vice president. And so uh, the Washington uh, Post is responding to all the articles concerning 
uh, Kamala Harris being the most unpopular. Is it Kamala or Kamala? So um, it's kind of complicated. It, um, so it's Kamala is how is I think the preferred way to say it. I think I pronounce it the Sanskrit way. Um, but she gets mad at you either way, depending on whether or not she's on the other side, right? Yeah, it, it, it's it's a weird it's a weird thing. Uh, but um, and then it's also you know I have I prefer issues. robe instead of Rob. Okay. Okay. Remember <laughs> that, okay. and don't diss me again. Okay. But you know I already have a uh, tough enough time with uh, Kirsten, Kirsten. I mean, uh, so yeah. But uh, anyway, Vice President Harris has been uh, essentially. The data is looking like she is the most unpopular vice president in history. Um, and, you know, there's definitely a case for that. Uh, the Washington Post feels like, you know, conservative media is cherry picking uh, their data. Uh, they were looking at uh, various stats, comparing them and depending on where in the presidency uh, we were looking at. And so, you know, do you think there is some credit to the title uh, most unpopular vice president in history. Well, I think there is substance as to why she should be the worst vice president in history. I don't really like to monitor polls so much because human emotion ranges in so many hills and valleys and whether or not people like something is of very little interest to me. What interests me is substance. Um, I think she's a vacuous airhead who's been promoted into lofty, lofty positions uh, because she is black and a woman. And, um, you know, I think she's, um, cognitively deficient um, to handle much responsibility at all. Um, so whether or not other people like her or not, I'm not gonna judge what people think of somebody, um, what a group of people, cause you've got this group thing going on all the time. You know, if you remember Jesus was really popular and then all of a sudden the crowd turned against him. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, but, um, yeah, I think there's, there are reasons why people feel the way they do. I don't know if the reasoning of popular opinion is always based on what my reasoning would be, because my reasoning is always substance based in fact and logic. I think people don't like her because she's got a witch laugh. I don't, I think her witch laugh is kind of shrill and it gives me the creeps. Um, it's also used as a deflective mechanism. Yeah. Um, I look at her policies and she's just, um, I mean, the silliness of what's going on in Washington and the policy positions, uh, the platitudinal answers to everything. Um, almost all of it is out of the playbook of the far left Nobody actually defends a position or stays around and talks to reporters about the substance of policy. Um, so I think all of those factors might be one of the reasons that she is so disliked. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of a wild claim. Uh, you know, if we had the same level of technology that we had today as we did back when you know, Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton and killed him. Uh, would that have made Aaron Burr on paper the most unpopular vice president in history? You know, he essentially murders someone. So, you know, what does that really mean? And so it is kind of a, you know, it's one of these things that conservative outlets like to put out that, you know, people are going to click. So you're buying into, you know, it's like, it's almost like in 1984 when you have the five minutes of hate where it's just like, yeah, Kamala really does suck. 
and you know I do agree I think she is of uh, kind of a wild and crazy woman in her own way I think she's cut from the same cloth that Hillary Clinton is where you know you know power no matter what do whatever it takes to get more power and you know doesn't really seem to care and have the ethics that I think someone like uh, Thomas Massey out of Kentucky has. So uh, I'm definitely uh, not a big fan of her. She has a very shady history when it comes to things that she has essentially enabled. And uh, I, I think in theory, she does deserve that title. And there is also a piece of me that feels like she is being set up to fail uh, by the Bidens. I think Joe Biden has an ax to grind with her. And, you know, she is essentially being given certain tasks to essentially make her look like she's incompetent. Well, she makes herself incompetent when she's in charge of the border and two million people, two million illegals come across. And she really hasn't been down there. She went when she went down there, she went to the uh, airport at McAllen, Texas, where there, there's a wall and nobody is coming across the border. I'd like to get back to one thing, Stu, that's a little bit off topic, but one of the problems I think we have in our political discourse today is sensationalism and media sensationalizes things. And when I say media, I'm primarily talking about the telegenic side of things, screens and being able to see a picture um, but in colonial days, well, and after, after colonial days, let's just say before there was, was radio and TV, there were hundreds of news magazines and periodicals, and that's how people got their news. They actually read. And when you read, um, you have to filter in the substance of issues and, you know, when you read something, if I'm not this type and you're not this type, but some people are, and Democrats are this way, are easily sensationalized by a picture or an image or a, um, or a talking point. But in the olden days, when everybody was reading newspapers, they actually read about substances and I think they formed opinions based on kind of more of a foundational view of the policy. As today, there's so many people who've been sensationalized that they formed their opinion on emotion immediately, and they can't go more than a quarter of an inch past the surface to scratch anything deeper as to whether or not a particular policy works. Yeah, I know. I think that's very fair. You know, I think um, nuclear power is a good example of that. You know, people hear nuclear and there's just a knee-jerk negative reaction to that because, you know, your Britain goes to atomic bombs going off and not, you know, well, has this been used? You know, I know there are a few people out there who have nuclear pacemakers that are still ticking which is a wild thing to think about. There are nuclear power plants today that, that are probably the size of a city dumpster, not a city dumpster, but a dumpster, a trash dumpster, you know, and they can uh, power half a city and they're perfectly safe. Uh, but yeah, people just don't think. Uh, example, we have this stupid um, bus line in Richmond called the Pulse, mm -hmm. where the city tells you, instead of people telling you where they want to live and how they want to get to work, the city takes this big grant of money and they go, public transportation is good. We'll build a bus line. Well, it's not based on any market forces. So they put all this money in there. And of course, it's losing a ton of money. But I was at the end of the bus line at Will Lawn when I was buying something for the office. And everybody had ridden the bus down there. Uh, I did, and I drove. And uh, I said something to one of the black-clad millennials 
in line, I said, you know, I think it's a tremendous waste of money. And he went ape. And really? All he could say is, how can you say that? It gets rid of cars. That's all he could say. Like cars are bad. You know, <laughs> you know, cars allow us to move goods and services and people around to make us more productive uh, and have worked remarkably well and everybody wants one. And but, you know, all he could do was the shrill. It gets rid of cars. Anyway. Well, yeah. And I guess my big issue with the pulse is that, you know, they said it was going to take one year to construct. It took around three to four. Uh, whoever thought it would be a smart idea to put a lot of those uh, terminals in the middle of the road, I think that was not good. And also, you know, you see, you can tell who's coming in from out of town and who never comes into the city based on how they interact with those lanes because it doesn't make any sense. It is essentially, we all essentially had to see it hap at work and at play for us to realize, okay, this is how this works. With this weird all the turn lanes are messed up and the lights and everything but here's the mistake that these surface thinkers do with with energy we shouldn't look at the amount of energy used we should look at how productive energy is used in other words if i can get downtown in my car in 10 minutes and now, because they have all these stupid bus lanes and bike lanes, it takes me 25, I lose 15 minutes of time. And what do I do with my time? I create things of value. And the more things the society creates of value, the lower the energy cost is to the goods and services you create. And, um, you know, the surface thinkers don't think like that. Um, but anyway, um, we were on what subject? We were on K Kamala. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so was, yeah, I think she's a wedge. I vote she's a wedge. Okay. Uh, well, was the Washington Post right to kind of push back a little bit? To say the things? To kind of say, well, this is kind of a ridiculous yeah, of course they're going to say that. No, they're not right. They're never right. Um, you know, they're... folks, whenever you read any kind of news source, you have to look at the source. And yeah. when you have a publication that habitually misstates the truth about every issue and politicizes it and puts it in a leftist light, you know, it's racist, it's um, misogynist, it's this or, or that. You just have to look at the source. Getting back to this, back before radio, a lot of newspapers were partisan. They looked at things, but they told you they were partisan. Mm -hmm. And you had the opportunity to look at whatever publication you wanted to and talk to folks. Well, now there's generally this omnipotent one narrative that's just pushed down your throat by the MSM all the time. And I think we conservatives are much more knowledgeable about issues because unlike the left who just take the hook like a guppy, whatever they throw at them and just believe it, they, the MSM creates the narrative and then we have to go, hmm, I don't know if I believe that. And then we have to dig for alternative sources of news to, ba to balance it out and come to um, and an opinion based on facts and logic, as opposed to this one world narrative you hear all the time. And, and that is backed up in statistical studies where they've looked at various people across political affiliations and how they interact with the news. And one thing you do see with people who affiliate more with the left is that they do not look at other sources, but anyone who is moderate or to the right of that We'll look at multiple sources across multiple, you know, partisan lines to piece together the truth that they think is really out there. And you know, that isn't that. You is, haven't read the com the Communist Manifesto. I've read that. Yeah. Yeah, I have too. Have you've read Marx and, and Engels? I've read Marx and Engels, and I've read Hegel 
to understand why they think the way they think. Fun. And um, I've read Mon Comps. You read that? I've read that. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, you I, have to read everything to to understand how people think and why they think and to be able to use the lessons of history to understand why the world is the way it is. Yeah, I think there is nothing more troubling than to hear anyone to give the advice of, you don't need to read that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think there's anything more troubling than Twitter and Facebook and these news organizations, well, news organizations, information organizations that cancel articles that they don't agree with. They just delete um, alternate opinions and it's just not alternative opinions. It's anything that that um, that detours away from the one world narrative of pretty much everything they view. Everything they view has one narrative and no nuances at all. And then if you bring up a nuance, they cancel you. Yeah, that's scary. Something that uh, something that Tim Pool talks about a lot, and who Tim who Tim Pool, uh, he was an independent journalist who got very popular during the Occupy uh, Wall Street movement, uh, doing just guerrilla journalism. And oh one yeah, of the, one of the things that he talks about is how all of these people who work in the mainstream media are in giant kind of group chats with each other. So they're giant what? Group chats. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know. Form, they're not at home in their library reading a number of different sources. All of their thought process comes from the group trap, the group chat where everybody thinks alike. Yeah, so it's everyone in that industry kind of talking with each other across the different news companies. And essentially, they all walk line in line with, you know, just this one you well Stu, as you are i'm a big believer in the liberal arts and my understanding well first of all i think journalism schools are stupid uh, but i think a lot of these new york times type folks go to a, jur a journalism school but what does that tell you about the peloponnesian war or uh, the founding of rome or the Crusades, or all these things that have affected our history over the years. How can you live in the modern world without understanding the past? Um, and it's so clear that not only do they not understand the ancient past, or even the near ancient past, they don't understand what happened in the 1980s and the 1990s. I mean, it's shocking to me how illiterate much of the mainstream media is yeah i mean it's it's really sad there's definitely been the dumbing down of you know the modern world and there are a lot of people to blame for that so well the more money that goes into education the worse it gets maybe that's a topic we can talk about sometime yeah definitely so this next story concerns our good friends at disney and how they have decided that they are going to mandate how uh, their staff is being medically treated and they want everyone to get the COVID vaccine. And so their language for this was interesting. They said all salaried staff and non-unionized workers. Have to get the vaccine? Yes. But the unionized workers don't have to get the vaccine. That seems to be what's the subtext of that. Yeah, maybe they have something in their contract that says they can't do something like that. Or maybe they have to go through the union before they can put a mandate on you. Yeah. Um, and I have, I have seen that some unions are going to mandate it and others are fighting back against it. So it is interesting to see how this all plays out. But I was almost curious to see if you thought it was a glimmer of hope that even a company as powerful as Disney 
in my view, a monopoly even feels like they can't dictate that much. Well, I don't have much hope yet, but you may know that I'm involved um, as a lawyer in a couple of lawsuits that might be filed in Virginia relating to vaccine mandates. Um, I think there is so much political fear among the judiciary. They don't have the testicles they used to, to their job is to read the law. And I think they too are somewhat of a victim of uh, hysteria, of the popular hysteria and groupthink. Uh, I wrote an article today that I think will be will be published about the vaccine. And, you know, the news isn't getting out there like it should, but I do believe it's beginning to creep out there. In Australia, which is a very liberal democracy and a very independent people, I might add, um, the military has been called out to enforce lockdowns and to enforce vaccinations. That's scary. Um, there are all kinds of laws on the books in the United States in every state that the government cannot force somebody to have a, um, a vaccine. Um, Virginia has laws on the books like that. Um, the Virginia laws do have an emergency provision, but COVID is not mentioned in the emergency provision. And if they want it to be, they have to go back in front of the General Assembly and pass a law. But we live in somewhat of a lawless society today that certain leftist groups think they can just ignore the law. But a lot of people don't know are the nuances of a vaccine. There is a Dr. Robert Malone. He practically in, invented, what is it, the R? The mRNA. Is that right? mRNA, yeah. Right, vaccine. Uh, he's been very vocal in saying that the vaccine should not be applied to a universal population. And the reasoning is uh, there are dangers associated with basically a, uh, an unauthorized, well, an emergency drug like this. Um, and the dangers are that why, while it, he calls it a leaky vaccine because it's not foolproof. And um, what happens is when you try to vaccine or mandated vaccine to a wide population uh, in the teeth of a pan pandemic, it causes the pandemic to mutate much faster. And that's what we see with the Delta variant now. And what he suggests, and I agree with him, it certainly makes sense for um, older populations and um, people with deficient immune systems to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, how up and you know children might have deficient immune systems but for everybody else it's questionable and it ought to be an individual decision based on a multiple of factors of the indiv individual um what the media will not tell you is there have been lots and lots of deaths associated with the vaccine we don't really know how many because again the CDC does not want to keep that, uh, uh, does not want to track that or let us know about it. There's a site called VAERS, which is a uh, voluntary reporting mechanism. And um, the other, a week or two ago, it said that they had over 12,000. Then they marked it down because of political pressure to six, but it's a voluntary organization and the thoughts are amongst a lot of people who know a lot about this is 
deaths might be 10 times that. That would be uh, 60 to 120,000 deaths. I personally know three people who have died from the vaccine. Um, and then there are all kinds, if you listen to, um, he had an interview the other day with Peter Navarro, and there are all kinds of medical complications, um, um, cardiac problems, the scarring of the heart tissue, um, there are problems with women's menstrual cycles. Um, it's interesting the vaccine can cause latent um, viruses that your natural immune system has suppressed to arise again, like herpes and, and Epstein-Barr. Um, so yeah, and there's a whole list of things like that that are being reported every day. Now, it might be a fairly small percentage of the, the overall folks but it usually takes a long time for these type of side effects to manifest themselves and they're manifesting themselves immediately. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of the great human rights violations uh, in our history. And it's just amazing the group think. And I think you and I have talked about this, but you have all those people who say we're following the science. They're not following the science at all. I guarantee you they've never listened to anything else. But what they are following is scientism, which is almost a, re a religion based on what they want to hear as opposed to where they would follow the science. Mm -hmm. And there's a book that I think is just great. Uh, it was written in 1841 by this uh, Scotsman, uh, Mackay. It's called uh, Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And he, you know, that's the big thing about this book that a lot of people have read is the, the Dutch tulip bulb crisis of 1629 or so. But he just talks about how people uh, get excited about one thing and they think in only one way. And I think you see a lot of that going on in the general public today. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's almost like the Salem witch trial where, you know, you're convinced everyone around you is a witch. And Did you know we have an ancestor who testified at the Salem witch trial? Uh, or testified as a witch, Rebecca Ames, right? Well, he testified that somebody was a witch. Well, we have one that was accused of being a witch as well. Well, really, we're on both sides. Is yeah. this how balanced we are? <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, but... Uh, I don't know about the Rebecca Ames. Yeah, she, her Wikipedia is wild. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, I, you know, my advice to anyone would be, you know, consult with their doctor about, you know, what is the most realistic thing for them and you know, see, and because everyone has all manner of health issues and, you know, one size fits all is not going to work for everyone. You know what it is? It's cultural Marxism where the elites don't see us as individuals. They see us as just this blob of the state. So therefore, yeah. if we're just one blob, they can mandate something to the blob. We're not individuals. Every human is different and every human has a different um, um, medical makeup. Yeah. I mean, it, it almost reminds me of that saying of, you know, is it worth it to imprison 100 people if one innocent man is imprisoned? I'm getting the wording wrong with that. But for me, it's kind of that same thing where it's just like, obviously there are so many outliers out there. Whenever we see any kind of medical ad, you know, in the last 10 seconds, someone speaking at three times speed lists off all the negative things affiliated with the medication. Yeah. I mean, we know this. We know that there are consequences for certain medications. And the, the well, fact there's a yin and yang to everything in life. And if you inject something, 
to change the nature of the way you are, it's going to have certain side effects. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, the evidence is overwhelming now of known side effects that are very harmful, um, permanent, and cause death. And we're just in the infancy of all of this. Yeah, and, you know, would, if we were dealing with a different situation, you know, would these have been pulled by now for having these kinds of uh, side effects already? And probably the answer is yes, but I think everyone is just so desperate to get back to normalcy that they are willing to sacrifice as many people as possible. But it's the, the, the government that's making us not normal in that they have blown the pandemic, I call it the plandemic, out of, out of proportion to give themselves more power and control over us. It's, um, the CDC reported in, 20, in August of last year that only 6% of the population died strictly of COVID. In other words, they didn't have any other comorbidities. Um, 99.97% of the people survive. That means the 0.03% that die, 94% of those are with comorbidities. So if you want to attack the problem, you don't attack, you know, um, 330 million people and have them all do exactly the same thing. Um, that throws all medical ethics out of the the window, you attack that 0.03% um, and treat the small population of people who are more prone to the, the virus and don't jab everybody else with an experimental drug, which is going to have significant side effects in a healthy percentage of people. Yeah, and no, we haven't really seen too many companies come forward like Disney saying, you know, we're mandating this and if anything bad happens for it, you know, we're going to make sure that you're taken care of. Why do you think nobody has any balls, Stu? I don't know. Oh, I mean, why is that? Um, I mean, multitude of reasons, probably. It's just amazing to me. If I was the chairman of Disney, knowing what I know, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't uh, ethically or morally mandate a vaccine knowing of the harmful effects. Is that your cat? Yeah, yeah he's here. What's it? Tell us your cat's name. Uh, Perseus. And where did the name Perseus come from? Um, he was essentially the offspring of a show cat that cut out one day and got impregnated and uh, the kids of that family that had the show cat named all the cats V names. And his uh, original name was Van Percy, who is a Dutch uh, soccer player. And I wasn't going to call him Van Percy. So Percy became Perseus. Is there a Greek hero or heroine named Perseus? Yeah. Yeah. Perseus is uh, the gentleman who slays the Medusa. Oh, really? Yeah, like Clash of the Titans and all that. So you have a badass cat. Yeah, he's pretty cool. So is Disney wrong to be? Yes. <laughs> okay, this last one is probably, we've, we've talked about some pretty wild things. This is probably the wildest and maybe even the most troubling to me. I'm not going to lie. So... California's new animal wel welfare law could mean the end of bacon. That pisses me off. Because <laughs> I have my bacon every day. And yeah. I think the pig is the most noble animal in the animal kingdom and therefore should be eaten regularly. Yeah, and so, you know, essentially... When we look, I mean, fact, there are issues with factory farms. And, you know, there's been a lot that's been done in the last two decades to kind of shift some of these practices there. Factory farms make food cheaper to the, to the masses and Absolutely. make yeah. us healthier. Absolutely. And so 
you know, and things have gone a long way from where I think it's like in 1952, it took about a year to get some of these animals to wait so they could be slaughtered and become meat. And, you know, nowadays it takes a few weeks. So, you know, we have really kind of revolutionized how we do that. And there are ways that are more ethical than others to do and that. Kudos to schools like Virginia Tech for doing that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, they may not know how to read or write very well, but they know how to make hogs get bigger faster. Yeah. Yeah. And so essentially what it looks like is that only 4% of uh, hog operations would even be able to comply with these rules in California. <laughs> You know, some of this is uh, um, a function of our luxury um, in that we're so rich and we have so many things at our fingertips that we can worry about um, whether or not a hog is treated what we consider ethically. What I consider ethically is, is you know, what what is it going to taste like, and how and and what am I going to pay for it? Um, a very very nice gal I know the other day I was talking to her and she told me how bad she felt when her family would uh, catch crabs and throw them into the pot alive. Okay, but can you imagine? A hundred years ago, anybody thinking like that? Yeah. Food, you know, I mean, it's. Well, and, you know, she's not the, and, you know, she wouldn't be the, a hundred years ago, she would be the one getting all the food to feed herself, you know, or contributing with other people right. to make that happen. Right. And when you live in that world of farming and raising livestock, uh, you're conditioned to the fact that you have to kill the hog or chop the head off the chicken yeah you know and if you're if you're living on a farm you're loving these animals you're raising these animals you're taking care of these animals but at the end of the day you know there is the separation of you know this animal has had a good life and now i'm going to eat it you know we have evolved to consume meat that is just who we are we we do need that it is something that is bioavailably rich to us we benefit from it and you know there are many ways to fatten up a pig and give a pig a very good life before eating it and they're very intelligent animals but at the end of the day you know this is food they are food and you know there's lots of places here in the united states where wild pigs are essentially out of control too this animal isn't endangered it is a menace when it's released oh. And the wild led tremendously up the up the east coast. Yeah, um, it used to be there were no feral pigs, but in you know a few very remote places, and now they're they're right up in northern North Carolina now, and I suspect they'll be in southern Virginia soon. And of course, they do tear up everything. Yeah, um, but, but, but if this is somebody imposing their values. Remember that nutcase who was um, who started crying at the Academy Awards about sentient beings? No, that sounds fun though. Robert Downey Jr. Okay. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ. I think it was the most retarded thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, but he was associating animals on the exact same level as people. I mean, it, it is life. I mean, I can understand that argument, uh, but you know, life is life is very complicated, and there's certainly aspects to all living animals where you, we know that we're going to interact with them in a multiplicity of ways. You know, do I feel bad? For, do I feel bad if a mosquito is biting me and then I smack it dead? I mean, I. I I might have a thought that it's not the most ethically nice thing to do, but you know, that mosquito could bite me and change my life forever. A tick could bite me and give me Lyme disease. I mean, there are, I mean, nature is not all kumbaya with us. 
Uh, book of Genesis uh, says man is a, a steward of the earth. We're on the top and we manage it. And I'm always being a lawyer and, uh, and reading the common law, the English common law. I've always thought of animals as chattel. They're property. That's it. And that property belongs to me. And I can do whatever the, the hell I'm pleased to them. Um, and if it's not that way, you get in a really uh, slippery slope. Um, um, do animals, you know, have certain rights? Um, rights that humans have? Um, can you evict them from their pen without having to go to court? Uh, you know, um, are you re required to... Um, give them health insurance. I mean, they're chattel. And uh, the way I look at it, and I've always looked at this, and you're going to think I'm a mean son of a bitch. But when Michael Vick, when they had his trial, and I didn't keep up with it, the way I looked at that was they're his dogs. And he might not be a nice person. And he might not be somebody I want to be around or to be around my children if he has a really cruel side to him. Um, I think that is an indication of character. But I always looked at this as a property issue. And, um, you know, these animals are people's property. They're not some sort of sentient being that has some sort of recognition in civilization or the law or philosophy equal to man. Well, and, you know, and if we just want to take the case for the people who love these animals and want them to be as happy as possible, then, you know, you can incentivize the market to make certain, you know, uh, regulations for certain qualifications. So like kosher. So, you know, if you see kosher on the label that, it's going to comply with these regulations. If you see, you know, um, animal, let's do animal back rub. So, you know, that animal got a back rub every day of its life. It was fed flowers. And so now you can go home with your ground beef, knowing that you're eating a loved animal that was given all the love in the world before it was shot through the head with a steel bar to, to kill it. <laughs> You know, so there are it's the mandate versus the market. You're exactly right. Government mandates don't work. The market does. And since we are so rich today, if there are some lunatics out there who feel as though modern farming practices are unethical, then they can do something about it. They can go buy the hogs and they can bring yeah. them home and and, you know, like. Arnold the pig in Green Acres. Uh, or they can do, as you say, insist, they can start farms where they insist that, like you say, the pigs eat flowers and um, are able to watch. Um, yeah, they get the, TV rights. They the three little pigs. Uh, they the Valley sausage commercial. <laughs> Arnold on Green Acres. They're giving, you know, there's no cultural appropriation. They can look at TV and see their own kind of. Well, and the kind of wild thing about this story is that, you know, the state, you know, hasn't even released the formal uh, regulations for this. So they're, they're willing to sign it, sign off on this, but, you know, they haven't really even gotten into the details of what the reality of this would look like outside that, you know, pigs need this much space for it to be humane. And it's just another one of those things where it's just like, how are these people in power and how are they allowed to do these things when there are zero, there's no plan? Well, that's the whole, let's get back to property rights. They do that because it's not their property. They have no skin in the game. But like you said, this government was set up like the 
shareholders of a corporation where the people who owned the government and owned the most of it had a higher vote, you wouldn't see such stupidity. Boy, it looks like, you know, they haven't even decided yet on whether or not. So if someone in Iowa makes a pork product, would it be allowed to even be in California if it didn't fit the regulations? Right. So that is another reality as well that, you know, you may be able to get the unregulated pork from another state, but you're probably paying God knows how much to get it. Or they could just say, no, we're not even allowing that as well. But yeah, and just, of course, they'll end up being a black market and it'll make the price of pork go higher. And likely what you're what you are saying is they just won't get their bacon. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just it's just wild to me. And, you know, I, I definitely love animals and you know, if anyone wants to, you know, push for certain labeling on the food so, you know, you can buy your values, I highly encourage that. You know, I, I definitely look at certain labels when I get my food. There are certain things that I definitely keep an eye out for. But, you know, the reality of the situation is that, you know, there are many labels out there that when I see that, I know that it's technically considered inhumane. So, you know, halal is going to be inhumane by the standards. Halal? What's halal? Halal is uh, a technique used for a lot of um, meat uh, from, you know, the Middle East, where the animal is essentially, uh, its throat is slit and it bleeds out. And so... Uh, everything. The calves who go through the modern... Um... It's different. You, there is a uh, there's a cortisol spike that happens when you do that. So it, is, it isn't technically a painless death. Um, the reasoning that, you know, that is a religious scripture aspect of, you know, certain cuisines is that it actually was a safety thing back in the day where by allowing the animal to bleed out, the, the meat isn't going to putrefy. So uh, nowadays we have machinery that can get all that. The book of Leviticus is full of things that we don't understand today, but they were written for safety and health reasons back in Israel. Absolutely. And, and I've read about how amazing, you know, that some people might even say that, you know, Moses was the first, you know, microbiologist because, you know, washing the hands, keeping everything clean and how the attention to, you know, avoiding animals that might carry certain pathogens. You know, it's really actually kind of interesting to see, you know, the almost the Moses could really smoke some barbecue. Okay. Yeah. Some of the. Uh, well, you, there, you did know the uh, burning bush. Some of the texts that didn't make it in the original Old Old Testament. He had his own bar, barbecue joint uh, just outside of Jerusalem. Made a fortune. Right on. Good for him. Well, still, I'll tell you this is that um, I'm a generation older than you, but um, growing up where I did, you know, if we had a sick dog, and this is not shot people, we didn't take him to the vet to have the vet, the vet uh, euthanize him when we shot him. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm... I mean, it was just a, a, we were, you know, closer to that. The agrarian lifestyle that didn't have the luxuries we have today, and that was more of an acceptable practice. Yeah, and you know, Coleman told me that um, I did this. I don't remember doing this, but uh, he and I went dove hunting. I don't know. He was twelve years old, or so he killed a dove. You know, you killed a dove, and they're not there. They're still alive. He said, "I put the live." dove in his hands and I took his hand and I twisted its neck which is what you do and he said he could feel the dove die in his hand well you know I did that I'm sure I did that if he said I did that but I did that to teach him how to be a man uh, you know that, that these are the realities of the world and if you're going to shoot the dove then you have to be willing to hold it in your hand and kill it because that's what you're doing. Um, but, you know, we, of course, eat the dove. And, of course, we didn't do this to just kill to be killed to kill. 
Yeah. And I think he appreciated that I did that. But he said at the time, it made, you know, he, you know, it had somewhat of an effect on him. It made him think about things. Yeah. And, you know, being a part of, you know, the circle of life and then understanding where, where your products come from, you know? So I know for me, you know, I eat a lot of organ meat. A lot of people don't do that nowadays, but, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, eating all the animal opposed to. So you say organ meat? Yes. Is that when you like put your hand in another guy's uh, rib cage and rip out his heart and then start gnawing on it? Yes. Excellent source of protein. But, you know, like, you know, something like liver, like I will eat heart, I will eat liver. And, you know, I feel like I actually am in my own way, more connected to that process by understanding that, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna shy away from the reality of it. And I embrace the reality of it. You were embracing the reality of it in that moment with the Dove and Coleman, where, you know, if you want to be the person who complains about the process, but still is a part of it, you know, you're just a hypocrite. Well, and you make somebody and you burden everybody else for your beliefs, which is what this mandate would do. Yeah. Yeah. So safe to say that California is wrong on this. California is wrong on everything. (laughs) Well, those are the topics for today. Any words of wisdom for everybody? Well, Stu, it's summertime. I would encourage everybody to get outside before school starts and enjoy themselves, soak up the sun, and read Robin's Ride, of course. Right on. Well, always great talking to you, and I look forward to our next episode. You are a gentleman and a scholar, and um, I'm really excited that you've got this whole new cougar thing going on. Yes, yes. So uh, I'll... Keep an eye on that, and you know, if any uh, mountain lions, pumas, cougars, or jaguars show up at my doorstep, I will know why. Be prepared. I will be prepared. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Later. Later.